And there we go. We're on another episode of Friday Night Counterattack. And on this week, we've got, again, more people out with COVID and another brand new guest. And this one comes from across the pond, but it's actually from England. So I'd like to welcome Jason Blake, who is my PFSA scouting tutor. So thank you for coming on, Jason, at this special time in our lives of being in lockdown in the UK and being in lockdown in Canada. So how have you been? Thanks, Hamza. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, very well. Obviously, uh, we're all going through these these times of change and adaptation. So not been working with players, not been working with coaches for, for a considerable amount of time now, but staying positive, um, thinking about what we need to do when we can get back onto the onto the grass again. So lots of preparation, lots of kind of researching and looking at uh, any kind of learning resource we can right now. So yeah, doing well. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And we've got Vishar back who hasn't, who's been out of action for a couple of weeks. So Vishar, it's good to see you back healthy again after having COVID. So how you been? Cheers, mate. Yeah, COVID uh, kind of like knocked me off, man. It was uh, it was difficult. It was a difficult few weeks and um, actually all my, my parents suffered from it as well. And that was probably the hardest um, yeah. seeing them suffer um, because Yes, they're, you know, I don't want to say quite old, but, you know, they're, they're elderly, yeah. um, but they've literally got no, you know, health issues or anything. But to see them and to see how badly it hit them, it was, it was really hard. It was, it was a difficult, difficult uh, few days to the start of the year. But, you know, now we're, we're all recovered and uh, we're back to our normal lives now. Well, I wouldn't say normal, but, you know, kind of a bit of normality because literally I didn't leave the house from the 24th of December till I went out on Friday. So what was that? I think 17. Yeah. So it's, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. And you go crazy as well. Like there's how much TV you can watch and things like that. But, but on the positive side, you know, a lot's changed since I've been on the podcast. Man United are top of the table. We can talk about that another time, I guess. Let's. Uh... In May, if we were to talk about that at the end of the season, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, but... that's it. I mean, I mean, that that's, that's when it matters most. If you're, if you're at t- if you top at um, game week thirty eight, then you know, then we can talk about it all, all, all we like. But for now, you know, let's just kind of keep it on a lowdown, I guess, and uh, keep trying to fight and win games and get three points each time. Yeah, I mean, Jason supports yeah, West Ham, so- if I remember correctly. So, Jason, is that true? You're a West Ham fan. That, that's correct. Yeah, I'm a West Ham fan. Yeah, so I noticed. Uh, Vishal mentioned, let's keep it on the low down. And then you start talking about West Ham. I don't know if there's a connection between being lower down and, and talking about West Ham. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just the fact that with West Ham, they're literally <laughs> going about their business on a quiet basis. And I think they're doing quite well at the moment because uh, we had Danny Siggers on a couple of weeks ago, who was also on the course. And you may remember him. He's a West Ham fan. And I'm like, you're doing okay, but he doesn't like David Moyes' style of play. And I'm like, you've got quality attackers, but you're still lacking that proper finished goal scoring striker so I'm just wondering would you change anything in January for uh, West Ham United I think the first thing we got we got to think about David Moyes is he's he's new back into the job a second time so he was using uh, his squad would be heavily kind of Pellegrini players yeah so he's, he's going to take some time to kind of shape the squad I know there's a few that uh, I know Haller went out last week you know there's a few that went out on loan earlier on in the season um, so he's going to take a little bit of time in terms of January. It's never an easy transfer window, and as you know, we like Sebastian Heller just went to Ajax for I think about twenty million. But then Antonio scores against Burnley at the weekend, and he's 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 back uh, back fit again. But the problem is, if 
if he picks up another injury, I'm not I'm not sure really who comes in up top. Um, so I'm sure we probably will be looking for a striker in the next what we got maybe two weeks left of of, of the January transfer window. So um, I mean, look, you know, you said it there. We're we're kind of slowly progressing and, and and just getting some momentum and consistency. So it just does look like in the attacking area we might be a little bit light. So certainly, I would imagine if we could get one in up top in the next couple of weeks, that would be helpful should we get any injuries. Cause I don't think Antonio is, is great for us, but just relying on him individually. And, and then if he picks up a knock or, or any reason why he can't play, then I think, I think we'll struggle. And that leads me to my next point. The fact that you've got a couple of youngsters in the Academy coming through from West Ham and from the reserves as well. And again, you've been a scout at numerous clubs. We'll get onto that later on, but is it that time of year when you'd say, we can't really be spending that much money on a new striker because it would take like six months from to be, uh, bed in properly with the new league, new environment, or would you risk it with the new uh, young talented strikers coming through the academy? Or the it's it's a good question. I, I think it's it's a tough one to answer because if you're not working with those players regularly to get a real good insight, not just to what they can do technically, technically and tactically, but but mentally where they are, are they ready for the first team environment? You know, maybe the Premier League is easier without the fans and maybe it's diff- more difficult without the fans, but it's hard to say. I think it depends where you are in the league and, and West Ham at the moment. I think we're sitting 10th in the table at the moment. You'd look at the table and, and say that, you know, there, there'll be the management would be looking at hopefully a, a kind of fight for a European place, touch wood. Um, and so maybe the owners might say, well, let's let's reinvest that that Halan money with a view to trying to get us into Europe at the end of the season and hopefully not, you know, deal with a, a relegation battle. So I think I think it depends on the individuals. If if you've got a, you know, if you go back in into the Harry Redknapp era era when you would have had a young Jermaine Defoe coming through, I th- I don't think it would have been a difficult decision. I think you know a player of that quality knocking on the door to come from the the academy. It, uh, I think that that you know that would have been an easy one. Um, it just depends on the individuals and, and not working day in, day out at West Ham. It's difficult for me to know. Would you say any of the young players at West Ham are of that Jermaine Defoe ilk, that kind of quality or not so much? Because I'm not in England anymore. I, I, I live, obviously, as you alluded to, over over the pond in Canada. I don't I don't get to follow the, the academy structures as much as I did when, when I worked in the game. I don't know the, the young players that well at West Ham. I think the one at the moment, obviously, that we want to know if, you know, what, what happens next is Declan Rice, but he's obviously now... The captain in in Mark Noble's absence from the starting eleven. So I think I think you know Declan Rice is the, the 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 kind of one that everyone's talking about right now. Obviously he's he's had a good few games for England now for a young player, but but Chelsea obviously have been have been kind of reported to be interested for the last six months, and I see there Vishal that Manchester United are now being reported to be interested as well. So you know that's the key one for us at the moment is if if our latest kind of academy graduate that's established in the first team now whether one he'll be here still by the end of January or whether we we get to keep him till the end of the season and maybe lose him then Bishar would you want would you want Declan Rice at Man United would you pay the 70-80 million for him oh I'd love him oh well uh, it's difficult because see that's a lot of money and um, especially with the you know current COVID crisis Man United have you know suffered a lot um, in terms of finances and stuff, so I just I just think it's, it's too much of a risk at the moment. Per, me personally, I wouldn't go for him right now. But what do you think? I'd love him at Man United because when you look at the prices that players are going for now—fifty million, sixty million, seventy million—when you break that over a, a period of five, six years, 
and you see how prime example when Re- Wayne Rooney came to Man United it was 27 million that's that's a bargain looking at it now for everything he's done but we have a similar player in Scott McTominay again a holding midfielder Scott McTominay likes the bomb forward just like Declan Rice but Declan Rice is better at tackling and passing in my opinion but it's just it's like similar differences and similar indifferences between them. But currently, we've got Nemanja Matic, who again is a holding midfielder, maybe as a Matic replacement. But again, being an English youngster, being in the England national team, it adds another 10, 15 million to your uh, transfer market value as well, which is probably not the best thing at the moment, given the coronavirus pandemic and another lockdown and no fans going in. So it's just, if it's worth the risk, like you said, Vish, so I can understand completely if we weren't to go for him at all. And we'll just move on to the next section, which is basically just talking about yourself, Jason. And again, if you just want to let our listeners know um, what you're doing in Canada and how long you've been doing that for and where you've started from in, from your journey. Okay, so um, you obviously mentioned there before that that we met through a, a, a scouting course that you attended and I, I was one of the tutors on the course. Yeah. My background's actually in, in coaching and... Um, been a, a qualified football coach now for 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so predominantly my time's been spent in England for the first 17 years. Uh, worked, started off at coaching in the academy at Southampton, obviously a, a, a tremendous academy where there's probably no better place to learn your trade as a young coach in, a, in an academy like Southampton's where, you know, the work that was being done and was incredible from the academy director all the way down through the staff. So... I spent I spent some time at Southampton and and then moved down the road to AFC Bournemouth. This was uh, this was when they were having some of their challenges in the lower league, uh, in League Two, and and some financial difficulties. But um, I moved from Southampton to Bournemouth to support my qualifications that I was doing. So I moved to Bournemouth and and went from being that was where I I made the transition from part time coach to full time coach at Bournemouth. Uh, where I also met Eddie Howe, who had a a huge influence on my career. Spent some time at Bournemouth, uh, and then Eddie actually got the job uh, at Burnley and and invited me up to take the the reserve team job, Burnley, which I accepted. And and then I spent a year doing that at Burnley before becoming their academy director around 2011, 2012, and then spent spent five years there in in the academy director position. And then... The academy director just before they made it to the Premier League because they made it in 20, yeah. uh, 2009, 2010, but then yeah. five years towards 2015, 16 or 16, 17. Um, we got promoted in the championship, which was during my time. And then we had the year in the Premier League, then we got relegated again. And then the year we got promoted the second time. And that, w- that was my last season at the club before uh, I was actually offered a job very interesting, really. It was a, a head of football operations for a university called UCFB, which is, um, you know, they specialise in, in football-related courses, football business. And, and then they, you know, during my time there, we decided to expand the portfolio of courses into the, the coaching and talent identification and those sides. And, and that was an interesting two years for me. But then uh, I was offered a, a, a job in China. So I was the academy director of um, Dalian Yifang, which you'll know as where Rafa Benitez is currently the manager. Yeah. Um, and... I'd been doing some some work with the Chinese Super League through my job in the university. Fascinating place, China, for their growth in the game and, and where they were going. Um, so I, t- I, I took the job, um, did a year in China. The academy structure is is very underdeveloped. Uh, we see what what the su- Chinese Super League's doing, and at time at the time, I think you know Tevez had already been there. 
Uh, Oscar had joined from Chelsea. Hulk had gone, and so there were some big, some big names there. But what they're doing at Chinese Super League level, it's very underdeveloped and unstructured to a degree in in the academy youth structure in, in China. If you're going to work in the the youth environment in China, it's not something that you're going to do for a year or two. It's it's you know I think it's a 10, 15 year project to to even get it kind of going in in a structured way. Just before moving to China, I met my fiance who's Canadian. So yeah. she moved to China with me and, and and after a year we looked at it and felt was it going to be a long-term project that we were going to commit to where we wanted to obviously uh, put our roots down as a as a couple and and to get married and and then kind of develop our family and we didn't feel China was going to be the place for that. So um in my contract I had a clause which meant that I could leave um, after 12 months without any compensation owed if, if I went to another organization. So I extended that, that, that clause. Uh, I, I, I kind of exercised that clause in the contract and then made the decision to, you know, England was an option. And by this time now, I'm a, you know, I, I've, I've achieved my pro license, which is the highest coaching qualification in, in world soccer. Uh, I'm an academy manager license holder. By that stage, 18 years in the game, you know, extensive knowledge and experience of working as a coach, as a as an academy director. I've worked in all the age groups from from nine year olds all the way through to senior. Been involved in the scouting talent idea area of the game as well. So I felt, and I spoke to my partner Jennifer, and we were like, um, if we go to England, it's very established, and you'd go in somewhere and and you would kind of pick up their methodology and you would be part of the system where it's very established or looking at Canada, which perhaps at the time, you know, not many people would have realized, but the Canadian Premier League was just about to start in six months time. And also Canada previous, uh, about about three or four months previously, uh, had just been awarded the, as co-hosts of the 2026 World Cup. Yeah. So looking at it, you're like, okay, you've got the Canadian Premier League coming, first professional league in Canada. You've got the World Cup coming. That's a really exciting time for the game in Canada. And then looking at someone with my background and my knowledge and my experience, felt that maybe I could, I could really give to the Canadian game and help help the growth and development of the Canadian game. So we decided that we would we would try and uh, and and start our life together in Canada. Um, and I've now been here just over eighteen months. Really, most of that time has been has been kind of fact finding and trying to learn. It's, it's wrong. As when I went to China, you don't just drag and drop the English structure and English perceptions of the game. You've got to take time to learn how the game is kind of governed and and you know the culture of the country you're in. So I've been doing that the same uh, here in Canada and and kind of eight, this eighteen months has been doing a lot of kind of watching, observing speaking to people from all levels of the game, from, from the head of development, Jason DeVos, at the very top end of the Canadian structure, and then speaking to grassroots coaches, um, some in the city. So where I live in Alberta, we've got Calgary and Edmonton, north and yep. south of us, which are two big football cities in Canada. So I've had, I've had the, uh, the ability to, to kind of network and communicate to people in those cities. But then we have some rural areas where it's not as developed and, and, I've had a great opportunity to kind of get to know some coaches that are working volunteer parent coaches that, you know, if they don't coach, then that group of players haven't got a team because there's, there's no coach to take the team. So it's, it's been a very interesting 18 months in Canada. My learning will never stop. I'll, I'll continue to try and learn and, and develop my understanding of the game here. But now I'm, I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm starting to get a good idea of, of the MLS teams in Vancouver, Montreal and Toronto. And we've obviously got the CPL teams now as the, the, there's been two seasons of CPL. Um, and, and actually in Alberta, we're one of the few provinces where we've got two Canadian Premier League teams. So we've got FC Edmonton and we've got um, uh, Cavalry FC. Yeah, really enjoying it. Uh, that, that's kind of brought me to the 20 years in the game. Um, recently started to deliver some of the coaching courses with the Canadian FA. I'm going through that process of becoming a, a coach educator for them. Um, similar to, as you would know, uh, Hamza, from the uh, professional football scouts uh, courses that you did, similar process, we're now delivering courses online. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. I, I, I do like coaching and working with players, but coach education and coach development is also something that I'm really passionate about. No, you probably need to have some water off of speaking all that time. So thank you very much for going into so much detail over everything you've said. You've probably spoken more what than... A, than what said. a story, man. That's an incredible story. Yeah, anyway, what a story. What a story. 20, 20 years in the game just worked yeah. out like that. And I'm just like, you can't learn this on LinkedIn. You can't learn this on YouTube. It's fantastic. One of my main questions is like, you went to China um, and you spent a year there. What was like the most difficult bit about that? Was it like the culture that you going into? Did you find that difficult? Or was it just, you know, what, what was your experience of China? I just want to know a bit more information. It's a it's a great question, Vish. And, and for, I mentioned that I'd been doing some engagement with the university that I was working for before I went to live in China. And actually, I'd been to China 12 times with the university for various projects. So in terms of that initial going into the country, I was quite familiar by now. So understanding some of the customs and, and some of the uh, some of the ways of, of communicating. I obviously had a translator during those periods. It's a very unique way of doing business in China. It's, it's not very businesslike. It's very social. Um, lots and lots of dinners. So you, you get used to the way the culture of, of, of communicating and doing business and, and engaging in business activities. When I got offered the job and I accepted the job, I felt quite comfortable in knowing what to expect. And then I realized very quickly that visiting China and living in China are two very different things. When you have to open bank accounts, you have to get insurance, you have to pay taxes, you have to find an apartment. When you're doing all these things, it's very different. Because when I was going with the university, we had a, a member of staff at the university. She was Chinese, but spoke incredible English. She had studied in Oxford. So she was, all, she was on every trip with me. And so that was really helpful. But then when I went, moved there, I didn't have anybody like that. So now you are you are relying on on your instinct a lot of the time. I was only just starting to learn Mandarin. So uh, when you're trying to, to haggle a price for an apartment, but you don't speak the language, it's very difficult. The transition of, of visiting to living in China was, was difficult. The other challenge probably would be socially, um, because having visited Shanghai and Beijing, they are obviously huge Chinese cities, the biggest two, but also very international. And you can find a lot of kind of English-speaking Western communities um, within those cities. I was in Dalian, which was on the northeast coast of China, uh, pretty much as close to Korea as you can get in terms of over the water. It wasn't a huge English-speaking Western community within Dalian. So you, you kind of did feel quite isolated at times. Uh, and the club I worked for... Um, there was only one English speaker. That was where most of my professional kind of attention went was, was, was to the, the, the translator guy who was brilliant, but he was an academic. He wasn't a football person. 
So you know yourself, football has its own language. So when you're trying to communicate to players through a translator, but the translator was academic and not a kind of football person, there, there was challenges there as well. So naturally, if anything, there's challenges. That doesn't take away from the, the incredible experience that it was. If I was to do my time again with China, I would suggest to anybody that's doing it to do their homework before they go, to speak to people that have walked the path before them to understand these things. Uh, transferring money from China to England or Canada, wherever it might be, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And that's even without the language barrier. That's just the processes that their banking system goes through. And, you know, every month I would I would travel to the, the, the special bank that did it, which was an hour away. And I would be sat in the bank all day to do two transfers of money. So, yeah, it, it, it's hugely challenging, at times frustrating, but fascinating and fun, all, all rolled into one. It's crazy, man, listening to your story, um, especially how, you know, you, you just said that you didn't really have that person with you when you actually moved. It's just crazy. And full hats off to you, man. If I was wearing a hat, I would, you know, tip my hat, tip my hat off to you. Yeah, glad to have you on the podcast and hopefully um, we can have you as a guest again uh, when we have all our other members back uh, from COVID. It's crazy to think that you've worked with Eddie Howe and Sean Dyche, but what I wanted to know, Jason, was with the Eddie Howe story, did you know then he would be a top, top manager? So I got to know Eddie in the, in the youth environment of Bournemouth. I, I think, I think uh, if, you, if you look at any of the top managers in the game, if you look at any of the top kind of business people, the Elon Musks, the Steve Jobs, you know, anyone at the top of their field, you, you hear the same characteristics about uh, dedication, commitment to learning, a, a ruthless and relentless attitude to improve and get better and learn. And Eddie had all these things that he, he demonstrated all these things when I very first met him in, in the uh, youth environment at Bournemouth. So did, did I know he would go on to be the manager he, he's become? I didn't because I, I don't have a crystal ball. And, you know, if Eddie decides that he wanted always to be a youth team coach, then then that potentially wouldn't have happened. But, you know, am I surprised he's done it? No, because he was uh, he was someone that I learned a tremendous amount from. Someone that, you know, they, they, they say that the, the leaders of, of whether it's business or football or whatever, they say they're curious. Eddie was intent unbelievably curious he would he would question me loads on on what I did at Southampton and if I uh, if I'd been on a study visit I've, I've been to a few clubs Chelsea Wolves West Ham when I was at Bournemouth on a study visit and I would come back and he would he would literally ask me what did I learn tell me everything we'd sit down and so he was very inquisitive and curious and, and all to try and be better he would he's a big believer in the one percent yeah. you know if it makes you one percent better then it's vital um, it's it's valuable, so uh, so yeah. I, I couldn't say that I I knew he was going to go and do it, but definitely not surprised because you could see these characteristics from from the minute I first met him, and then obviously he become Bournemouth manager and 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 excelled um, through the leagues and 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 to where he is today. I think he was like the youngest Premier League manager of all time. I may be wrong about that, but it's definitely one of the youngest Premier League managers of all time. And for him to do that with a club of Bournemouth size and their budget and their limited resources, it goes to show how well their coaches did, their scouts did, their academy did. And again, just bringing through shrewd signings and the signing of Callum Wilson just epitomizes Bournemouth for me. The fact that he grew, came through the ranks with them as well, like championship and Premier League, and he did so well. And they, only, they could only hold on for so long until they end up getting relegated. But it's amazing to see how they 
did so well against against champions Chelsea that season. They got promoted. They yeah, beat Man United yeah. that season, the Vitality Stadium at the time. And it's just amazing to see. And a lot of people could probably could have taken it for granted. Oh, yeah, we've seen this story before. A small club coming into the Premier League, playing their way of football, doing really well. But it shouldn't highlight the fact that Eddie Howe did so much so soon for Bournemouth and for the team. And it's just fantastic to learn about it from another point of view, from your point of view, really. One of the things with Eddie as well, and, and he, the first time at Bournemouth, I, I saw it firsthand because I was there. I wasn't there for the second spell, but he has a, an incredible ability to improve players. you know, And that's not just young players. That's players that are established in the, in the team and, and having seen the way he did it at Bournemouth the first time and at Burnley when we were there, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Callum Wilson, if, if you go back elsewhere on the journey, there's the Danny Ingses and the Charlie Austins that we actually tried to sign Charlie Austin before Swindon did. Um, oh, really? Born, wow. born, yeah, he was training with us and he, he you know, um, he was playing for Paul Town back then. I think they might have been a Southern League team and he was, he was in training with us regularly because Paul Town were a part-time club and obviously we trained full-time, so he was in training with us. But we had the embargo, so we couldn't sign him. Uh, Danny Wilson, I think, went down to watch him. The, the, the Sunderland manager went down, uh, Swindon manager, sorry, went down to to watch a couple of games. And, and, you know, the following week, Charlie had signed for Swindon. But then obviously Eddie signed him for Burnley. So, um, no, the, the Callum Wilson one's not a surprise because we've, we've seen how Eddie done great with Danny Ings. Uh, on a couple of occasions, Bournemouth and Burnley, the Charlie Austin one, you know, real good strikers, great goal scorers. So, yeah, not, not a surprise. And, and his ability to improve players is, is I think that also rep- was a huge kind of compliment as to Bournemouth going through the divisions. Ridiculous how he's done that and just kept going. And Callum Wilson getting into the England squad and scoring. And it, he could have easily stayed and helped them come back from the championship, but he's gone on to different things and taken a break out of the game. So, Maybe he'll get another job somewhere soon. West Ham, maybe England in the future. World's his oyster, really. So, thanks, Alan. So, um, so I can ask my question then, or yeah, ask yeah. a question. A few, a few things actually. So I was quite impressed, obviously, with your time in the game itself. You know, I mean, loads of people would love to have like a career in football. Um, I'd say one thing is that the Eddie House sort of story reminds me a lot of sort of like my team's manager, Dean Smith. Yeah. It's quite similar in that sense because like, I've been to a few of his talks and he's talked about his past and stuff. And it's quite sort of similar stuff by just saying improving players, that 1% and that kind of thing, that sort of determination and hunger every day. Uh, I'd say the other thing is, is there any chance of me getting signed in the Canadian Premier League? I'm, I'm not involved in that area yet, so I can't influence it. Why not? Why not? If you're good enough. I'm, prob- I'm probably a free transfer. I play for a Sunday league team, so it wouldn't be that hard for him to pick me up. Nah, I'm well, joking. But... Co- cost effectiveness is a huge part of positive recruitment, <laughs> so yeah, you never know. Right there as well. <laughs> yeah, you never know. It's quite good to know that sort of football's been developed in these sort of areas that didn't have that sort of strong background and, you know, they're trying to build it like it's from grassroots level. I think there's still like a lot of work that we can do in England sort of grassroots level like you said there's already a structure in place but I still think we can always improve in that sense I, I but, think yeah I, I agree Sal and, and I think one of the one of the big challenges particularly in, in England is sometimes at the top end when so much is going on it, it kind of it kind of it drags what's beneath it so the grassroots game when there's so many kind of academic and scientific improvements in the game now it influences below which is great but we've got to give people time in the grassroots game to understand it and implement it and figure it out. Where sometimes I think, I think 
I think uh, there's pressure to now have a tactical periodization plan at grassroots under 12s um, that also includes some kind of pre-season training schedule that fits into, you know, the, the game model that has a, a psychological phase again, you know, and before you like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's slow all that down. Brilliant when the top clubs can do that because they've got all the staff to do it. But when it's, when it's two coaches volunteering their time with an under 12 girls team, I think it can, it can really be a challenge. So I think we have to help the grassroots game by keeping things simple and then building on that. But I think we can, we can be guilty of complicating things. I think they could probably provide sort of more like grants. I know that there are some sort of funding packages that do go out from the FA, but the teams at the top could probably do a little bit more. I mean, obviously with COVID, it's hard financially, but if every team was to sort of contribute that little bit more, I think we could, you know, massively help like downwards because a lot of the time it's sort of um, people like are funding teams themselves, you know, like sort of collecting, donating, like, like for us guys, we like for us it's different. Like we pay our sort of membership fee and stuff like that. But um, for some of the younger teams, it's harder, especially when you've got volunteers that are giving time, you know, like for a Saturday or a Wednesday evening or something, you'd rather be at home, but you know, they're out in the cold training. Absolutely. Kids need to be kids, even if they are 12 or eight or, five years old and you want to learn about them psychologically or mentally or physically, let them just, they're, they're working at school five days a week. Let them come and play football for the time being. And like you said, the professional teams can deal with that with from their side. But for, for you, if you're a local team or a non-league team or like a Sunday league team, yeah, grassroots team, basically, you can let them play football, enjoy what they need to enjoy. And that's probably why a lot of, footballers leave at like such a young age, like they stop playing football because it becomes too demanding too soon. Has that happened in Canada so far? Have you seen that with a lot of the young players coming through? Um, In terms of of players leaving the game, I don't know. I've I've not, I've not gone into that environment enough yet with the COVID shutdown. It's made it very difficult, Um, Mm. but certainly too much demand on kids playing grassroots football or or soccer, as they call it here. Yeah. I've seen that. and, And that's a big message that I try to, I try to put forward to the coaches in, in Canada, the grassroots coaches. Canada's got a big hockey um, culture because obviously yeah. ice hockey is the number one sport here. And it's very competitive at all levels. And that's come across into the soccer environment. So it, it's, it's, it's a big one here, definitely, that I've seen. And what I'd say as well, Hamza, is you ask anybody at any level of the game, whether it's a Premier League manager, uh, an academy coach, a grassroots coach, a, a school teacher, whatever level, What's the first thing that's absolutely vital for a grassroots player? I don't know if anyone will say anything other than they have to enjoy the game. So we can't lose sight of that. And and I think the other thing to remember for coaches or anyone kind of facilitating grassroots soccer, they've got to enjoy it as well. It's not just the kids. You know, here in Canada, 98% of coaches are volunteer parent coaches. That's a huge number. Oh, shit, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's a big learning curve for me to see how many people are just volunteer coaches and, mm. and not receiving any income from, from it. So the amount of time that they're putting into it, the amount of communication that goes around the back of it, you know, the organisation, the driving, Canada's a big country. You know, the, the team, and we might talk about what I'm doing currently, the team that I'm involved in, we have to travel just under an hour and a half to Calgary to go and play our games. So the travel that's involved, there's so much that these people are are committed to doing and providing that they, I hope they enjoy it. 
because if they're not enjoying it, then then there's a problem somewhere. So enjoyment is fundamental for not just the players, but the people that are, are kind of running the game and, and, and facilitating the game for the kids. Very important. With me, from what I can see, is like you've got two major superstars in Europe, like Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David. I think he's at Club yeah. Bruges or Genk or something. Uh, he's Belgium. just moved to Lille. Yeah, just I think moved he's to Lille. Lille in France, yeah. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know that. But um, yeah, you've got two major Canadian superstars and... From when I was growing up, you had like Thomas Radzinski, who, not to put a downer on him, but he was like the only Canadian player I could think about at the time. And it was just one of those situations where could players like that inspire the next generation of Canadian players coming forward as well? Because uh, I've seen it with like some some countries, like Tim Cahill has done that with Australia and you've got Pulisic doing really well for the USA. And now they've got fantastic players in big European countries and big European teams. So... Could that be the next stage for Canadian football with the World Cup you're, coming up? Hamza, you're absolutely right. And, and if, if we look at the boys' game, because that's where your question was, Alfonso Davies has lit Canada up in terms of, you know, you would have seen he's just been announced as the first North American to be named in the FIFA Pro 11. So the world's best 11 has got a yeah. Canadian in it. Unbelievable exposure for this, for this country um, and the game of soccer at all levels. Jonathan David recently just moved to Lille and I, th- I think actually he scored an equalising or winning goal in the last minute this weekend just gone. They are two incredible role models for, for, for the whole game, not just young players in Canada, but for the whole game. And then in the last 12 months, a striker for the, the Canadian national women's team, Christine Sinclair, she broke the record for the most amount of international goals scored for male females um, in the history of the game. That's so insane. we've got Alfonso Davies, who's lighting up the the, the pathway for um, the male game. And then we've got Christine Sinclair, is the world record holder for international goals scored. Canadian football right now is in an incredibly positive place in terms of role models and, and global kind of global awareness of, of the Canadian game. So, you know, re- such a positive time for the game. And, and shame, obviously, we're going through the... the the shutdown of the game at the moment, obviously for pandemic reasons, but yeah, the Canadian, I just think, and, and, and Hamza, you know, when a, when a, a national competition comes to your country, how crazy the, the, the game goes in a positive sense. So with that world cup coming in 2026, I, I think the next few years is just going to be incredible. And, and Edmonton just North for me have a chance of being one of the host cities so there could be World Cup games 90 minutes north of me in the next, uh, you know, six, seven years. Like, incredible. Well, not even seven years. Yeah, next five, six years. When you put it into perspective, like the fact that Canada is as big as Europe, basically. Yeah. It's not like me going to watch a game at Old Trafford, which is like 45 minutes north of me at the moment. It's not the same. It's something that people from all across Canada can enjoy and get behind. And even little things like when we saw how the game in South Africa just erupted for the 2010 World Cup. We saw it in Russia as well, because Russia has always had its problems with uh, racism and homophobia and everything, but we never saw anything regarding that with any of the players, the fans, and everyone that I've spoke to went to Russia. They had an amazing time there and they were safe and they were looked after properly and the hospitality was amazing. So it's just something that I wish really could have happened sooner, really, because like you see how they go to all of these well-known countries like France and Germany did it in 2006. But when you see it in like South Africa, Russia, oh, it's amazing to see. The, the, the social impact and the economic impact is, is so important. 
and, and not detracting away from them, but just internally within the game, how it lights up young people and inspires them to become the next Alfonso Davies or, or whatever world-class player is going to come to town and play, play at their local stadium. The, the, the power of that, the magic of that is, is incredible. And uh, we're co-hosting it with um, the US and with Mexico. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating time and, and build up the, the couple of years before. You know, we obviously, in our lifetime, we had the, the Olympics in, in the UK without, I'm not quite sure how old you are, Hamza, but we had Euro 96 as well. And the, the vibe and the buzz leading into that tournament um, and then obviously the vibe and the buzz leading into the Olympics was, you know, something you'll remember for the rest of your life. So hopefully we, we get that buzz when when the World Cup comes to Canada. No, nah, with the Olympics, like being a Londoner myself, and I just remember being in school, seeing that we won the um, the bid to win the Olympics. I'm just like, I don't know why I'm so happy, but I was so happy because everyone was so happy. Yeah. Something as cliche as that, but when like my brother got us tickets, like the whole family to go to a day out at the Olympic Stadium and you get to see a full event at the racetrack and you get to see the hurdles and the javelin and everything. You're just yeah. there like, like my brother's like, you won't appreciate it at the time, but when you look back on it for years to come, you will see how well this is done. And it was only like two, three weeks later when I remembered that park in Stratford was just wasteland. It was no man's land. And it turned into yeah. most amazing scenes for so many things and so many um, events to be held and so many athletes to break world records and for that to happen in London and me being a London myself you're just there like this is why I'm so proud to be a Londoner and that's one of the most proudest moments I've had as a, as a Brit as well and for you as a Canadian uh, person staying there at the moment obviously being a Brit but being a Canadian citizen you probably feel the same pride I guess yeah. with the whole situation going on in Canada. Uh, absolutely and and seeing the game and learning about the game now is, you know, to, to anticipate what will happen when the real kind of momentum starts to build that the world cups come into town. I can't wait to see what it does to these young boys and girls that are, you know, just hopefully playing for the love of the game at grassroots level right now, but how it could inspire them and, and how it can inspire a nation. And, and you mentioned there the legacy beyond just the game, but the, how communities are formed and how, you know, the big come together of the country and everything is, I'm really looking forward to it. I can't wait. And, and, and hopefully I'm going to play my part somewhere along the journey and, and hopefully help to, to contribute somewhere of what I do in the game. So no, really excited by it. Can't wait. Can't wait. I might just have to tell my wife that I want to move to Canada now and help. I give my expertise, however inexperienced I am at the moment to come and help out the, the Canadian football game at the moment, Canadian soccer game, I should say, at the moment. Hamza, you won't be surprised to know that many of my scout friends and contacts in the game have already put in their claim to come <laughs> over when the World Cup comes to Edmonton, just Seriously. north of me. They're like, oh, well, okay, I'm, I want your basement. I want to come and stay. So I've got a list forming already of people that want to come and stay with me ready for that that time. So, yeah, it's, it's starting. Nah, that's my new motivation now. I mean, I, when I went to Canada on holiday, we stayed in Banff, so it's not too far from you as well. No, um, no, it's not far at all. I would just have to use the same Airbnb, which I was like back in the outback to just carry on and stay there. But Beautiful place as well. Beautiful it's a, place. It's a lovely holiday destination, Banff, is, especially in the winter as well. Uh, but no, I just wanted to know, because we normally do a scouting report every other week when all of the six of us are on. So I thought I'd let you do that today. I just wanted to know, are there any developing Canadian youngsters in the Canadian Premier League at the moment that we should be aware of or do you think could make it into bigger leagues currently? 
my understanding and my ability, because the MLS has still been going on and, and some of the, as you can imagine in Canada, the better youth players will gravitate to a Vancouver or a, a Toronto or, or a, a Montreal. And so it's Toronto, kind of like, so it's, it's kind of like with Swansea and Cardiff. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So they're yeah, the that's best correct. teams of the country, but they'll still play in England as opposed to Wales. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. So very similar to the way that the Welsh teams um, compete in the English leagues. Uh, so we've got those three, the Vancouver Whitecaps, Toronto FC and Montreal Impact, who I believe in the last few days have, have renamed themselves um, off the top of my head. I can't remember the exact new name, but Montreal Impact, who's managed by uh, Thierry Henry, who, yep. who was on the, um, the same coach education kind of pathway as me with the Welsh FA. The best Canadian players tend to gravitate towards those clubs. And obviously Alfonso Davies went from a local grassroots team just up in Edmonton went to play for, for the Whitecaps. Um, so now I, I think there's, there's two players in, in TFC that I think are the ones that people are talking about. Hopefully I get their names right. I think one is a, a, a boy called um, Jaden Nelson and the other one is uh, Akinola. I think his name might be a striker. I think Jordan Nelson plays, plays down the wing. So they're the two that are kind of being talked about. I think um, Akinola played a little bit in the recent kind of uh, COVID adapted games that took part down in, I think it was Florida or Orlando. So they would be the two, but I, I think they're still quite early in their journey. So they're just breaking in and around that first team environment at TFC. Um, haven't broken into the national teams, but I think uh, into the senior national team in Canada, but I think they're, they're, they're training around them on certain camps. So I think they would be, they would be the two. I've heard about, I haven't had the privilege to see them yet because obviously the reduced game programs happening, but they'd be the two. You should get them on the podcast, not just my podcast, but your podcast as well. And that's something um, I'll let you talk about now as well, because when I spoke to you previously, I was like, oh yeah, I want you to be on my podcast. I've just started because on the PFSA scout, you were like uh, scouting course, you were just there like try and think outside the box, try and get your name out there, not just on LinkedIn or on social media, but try and find other ways to branch out and, some people have done really well from our course and they've gone on to work for EA and they've gone to work at different clubs voluntarily. Me, still stuck in lockdown in England and still waiting for my first big break. I was doing a lot of voluntary scouting for lower league clubs and uh, everything, which is fantastic. But I thought if I still do a football podcast, that'd be fantastic. And now you've got one started as well. So um, you can tell everyone about us um, on your podcast, but I'd like you to tell everyone who's listening now about your podcast. So by all means, Jason, fire away about the GSE. Brilliant. Thanks, Hamza. And, and first, what I want to say is what you've done has been great because, and I know you would have heard me say it several times on when we delivered the course, but, you know, in a time like now for, and, and if we talk about football people specifically, coaches, scouts, aspiring coaches, aspiring scouts, just to be proactive and to remain positive and to be trying to take, any steps of moving forward while you can in these times of, of um, kind of, you know, shutdowns and, and lockdowns and all these things. I think what you've done to create the podcast and, and to gain your momentum in what you're doing here, I think is brilliant. And a, a real good example to many people that might be struggling to find a way to feel value at this time when, when we are unable to, to, to do what we would consider be the, the, the roles and, and the activities we love. So brilliant for, for what you've done. And yeah, thanks for mentioning my podcast. Actually, what I do, I, I've got two areas of what I do professionally now. So if you want to call my day job is my player development job. And, and uh, I've partnered with a brand new indoor facility where I am in Canada. 
and uh, and and again, we've we've suffered same as everybody else has with with shutdowns. So we're we're not working right now in terms of player development. Really enjoyed doing that with 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 a, a local group of players here, and we're trying to create a club environment that is to help young players here naturally um, to enjoy the game, to love the game, but also we want to help. We're based kind of in a rural community. So we want to help the coaches locally as well. And our club hopefully can, it's an open door policy. So whether you coach for another club down the road, that's okay. It's no problem. We're not trying to win the world cup. We we're just trying to help raise, raise awareness of the, the community we're in fundamentally we've all got to enjoy it first but but to raise some standards in what we do and, and none of it is about trying to get players into pro clubs or national teams or anything like that if they happen to do that on the journey brilliant that's what I do during the day and and, and I love that but then kind of my my GSE stuff which is uh, a hobby really is is a uh, global soccer education and it, it's that's about coach development and having been on the journey I've been on from my early days 20 years ago to, to working in, in three different continents around the world at different levels. Um, it's just to really give a bit back to coaches. Uh, and if there's anything I've done in my journey that might be of benefit for a coach to learn from, to hear, to talk about, then, then that's really the purpose of global soccer education and, and it being a global game and having been to all the different parts of the world I've been at not just having worked in England and China and, and now Canada but I've I've visited Australia I've visited many different countries in Germany uh, in Europe including Germany Switzerland Austria you know been to the US several times a- any way that that my journey could help uh, an aspiring coach or, or, or a coach in the game that's looking to develop or overcome a certain challenge that's what I'm trying to do so my podcast is really the big question I get in all the different kind of walks of life that I've been on is how do I become a coach? How do I do what you did? How do I get to that level? Uh, how do I get my pro license? Uh, how do I work for an academy? How do I uh, just develop my competence? So the, the podcast is really my opportunity to give those co- coaches and anyone with those same questions, the answers that not just for my journey, but other people that have, have been on their journey and, and and all our journeys can be different. You know, just my journey to becoming a, a, an academy coach is very different from someone else who got to the same level. So there's many, many different ways to do it. And the podcast is just really a chance for myself and my guests to share their journey to hopefully answer some of those questions. Already now, I, I think we're about five or six episodes in and, and you know, we've spoke to some academy coaches. We've spoke to a football development officer at Count EFA, um, my podcast that get the episode that gets released this Thursday coming uh, is a technical director of a national football association in the Caribbean. So, you know, very diverse backgrounds and journeys, but hopefully we, we, we're aiming or, or the role of the podcast is to show aspiring coaches or, or anyone trying to get into the game. Here's some of the ways that people did it. Here's some of the characteristics. Here's some of the key messages. Maybe some of the don'ts, you know, the, the do not do this. And, and, and that's really the purpose of the of the podcast is is just to, to help answer those questions. Yeah, because my favourite one was the West Ham one. When you think you're talking to Tony, I think. To- Tony Carr, the, Tony the former Carr. Academy Director at West Ham, yeah. Yeah, that was fascinating to hear because you're just there, like even certain uh, managers and certain uh, players of this day and age could hear and learn a thing or two from that because you t- tell me about how 
the apprentices of, the, of that day and age who used to go into schools and they used to educate uh, kids about loving the game of football. And that's why we started our podcast because of our love of football. And everyone on our podcast will find different things that they love or want to talk about or have uh, a lot of passion about. So like Vishal before, he's very passionate about Man United and he wants us to get back to the top. And you've got um, Rahil and Arif who are also Man United fans and they're fantastic to talk to about Man United. We may have difference of opinions, but it's, it's normal of what it is. Salim, who's a devoted Aston Villa fan. Yeah. And again, him talking to about Dean Smith, you can see the passion in his in his voice, really. Safian, who's also on here as well, is a very passionate uh, supporter of Lionel Messi and the way he plays the game of football. And you're just there like, everyone's got something about this game that, I, that they love. And for me, it's more along the lines of how can I get from my position of three, four months experience to 20 years positioned and listening to your podcast, you were just there like, again, you just said it now, it's not going to be a linear way of going through. You may, I may in 10 years time want to be a coach. I may want to develop different skills in the game and you never know where this game is going to take you. And that's what I love learning from your, your podcast. So even though we both just started out as podcasts, they're both fantastic to listen to and we both offer something different and genuine that we do want to help other people. And last week we had our little mental health episode with talking to Samaritans and opening up and, that's again something I'm passionate about. I want to help people get better through the power of football, for the love of football, with the love of the game. And that's something that you mentioned on the course as well. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the love of the game. And yeah. I 100% agree. And I can see why we're still here. I, I think, Hamza, I think you make a really good point. And, and if ever for someone, for people like yourself, you know, in, in what we do with, you know, Helping others is really important, whatever it might be, helping them to progress their career. You know, your episode last week and, and the mental health awareness aspect is huge. And not just because we know in the last few years of, of what's been going on in the game and we're trying to raise, uh, sorry, raise awareness throughout the game of mental health, health issues. But now just looking at the pandemic and the shutdowns and the, the social kind of disconnections that have been um, felt, you know, I think just in society in general right now, the message you're you're really trying to share and, and, and promote that, you know, we have to be um, more aware of the challenges that we're facing, not just in the game, but in society right now is really important. And, and you know, kudos to you and, and your team there for doing that, because I think it's a really important message. Um, I, th I think people have... Some people have excelled during the lockdown because of certain reasons, but some people I felt have found it very difficult. And, and you know, so what you're doing is great. So brilliant. I, I commend you and your, your, your team for that, definitely. Thank you. I'll pass it over to them and hopefully they, they can uh, speak to you in person over Zoom in the future. And hopefully we can get this up and coming. And hopefully 2026, we're big enough to come over to Canada as a unit to have an interview with you face yeah. to face. And that, that'll be something... Get, get the tickets early whatever you do oh, if, if only the pandemic wasn't here we'd be in canada already we'd be we'd be yeah. on there and company expenses that type of thing yeah i'll um, see you in banff yeah definitely i know the places in banff to go to so they'll love it as well eddie's um, diner eddie's diner oh man we drove past that actually um when i went with my family i'm just there like now nah, we've got packed food from home so i like don't mind yeah we'll leave it for next time but no, I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time, Jason. I know you're a busy man, but thank you for making time for this episode. I haven't asked you all the questions I wanted to ask you because like Vish and Salim said, we want to see you back again properly when all of the six are on. So brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. It's got, it's got room for a part two of Jason Blake, but thank you very much for your time. Please stay safe in Canada and uh, we'll take care. Thank you very much. 
Hamza, thanks very much for your time. And uh, I definitely look forward to coming back to meet the whole gang when, when the time's right.